The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A uh, very warm welcome to this edition of Scorebox. Uh, we are live from Dubai at the start of COP28. Of course, Dan Murphy and myself, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho looking at all the markets and the rest of the stories in the London studios. Uh, these are your headlines. Egypt handing over the keys to the UAE as the 2023 UN Climate Change Conference gets underway here in Dubai. This amid criticism over the host country's climate agenda. U.S. equity futures are ticking higher, with all three major indices eyeing their best monthly performances in a year, uh, led, of course, by tech and the Magnificent Seven. Meantime, Hong Kong's stock slipped to a five-week low after China's factory activity falls deeper into contraction. As calls grow louder for more policy support to shore up growth and restore confidence. Elon Musk scoffs at advertisers boycotting his ex-platform after he promoted anti-Semitic posts, delivering a very clear message live on CNBC. If somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go yourself. So here we are. It's the 28th COP Climate Summit, and it's kicking off right here right now in Dubai, with more than 70,000 delegates and 120 heads of state set to attend the conference over the next two weeks. But there will be two notable absentees, the US President Joe Biden and his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping. Uh, the host nation has also come under a lot of scrutiny, as you'd expect, as one of the world's largest oil and gas producers. The UAE's special envoy for climate change, Sultan Al-Jaba, is also the CEO, uh, as I'm sure you're aware by now, of the state-run oil company Adnoc, and has faced allegations of planning to use the event to pitch oil and gas deals, something, of course, uh, which he denies. Uh, earlier this morning, uh, Dan and I caught up with the president of the World Economic Forum, Borga Brenda. He said that whilst countries are making progress towards the Paris climate goals and keeping global warming to no more than 1.5 degrees above the pre-industrial levels, we're still a long way off. There is, uh, though, some progress, but the numbers are not that uplifting. Uh, the World Economic Forum has looked at where uh, do we stand and... Uh, to meet the Paris uh, goals and to stay on a 1.5 Celsius track, uh, we would need to reduce uh, the global emissions with uh, 7% mm -hmm. every year. Wow. And this year we we're expecting them to increase 1.5%. And uh, that's uh, not uh, a very optimistic start uh, of the meeting. But uh, let's see if we can change that track moving forward. Um, in terms of the, the financing numbers as well, I mentioned that as part of the introduction to you as well. Again, mobilizing private capital is something that the U.S. has done stunningly well with IRA as well. Isn't this the most brilliant example? If you get the policy right, you don't need public money so much. You need private money, which will fill every gap. So a public can be uh, incentivizing it like carrots, but the real big money has to be invested uh, by the private companies. And we have seen that, for example, solar mm -hmm. will overtake coal now as the biggest uh, and most important uh, uh, 
in moving forward uh, just in a few years. And that's because uh, solar is now uh, cheaper and it has fallen with one to one-tenth in 10 years. So it's 10% of the price 10 years ago. And that's the private sector that has been driving. So we need around 1.5 trillion US dollars every year invested in renewables. We're not there yet though, but um, we can get there. Well, um, our guest roster continues. Uh, really great to see Tom Rivet Karnak, actually, who is a former executive advisor at the UNFCC. Uh, and just to put it into uh, FCCC, I should say, it was always an extra C there. Uh, I should put it in context as well. You worked with Cristiano Figueres and worked very hard at the Paris Agreement. You, you were part of the team that really pushed everyone over the line. So, Tom, I just really want to know whether you're disappointed with the program. We've got this global stock take going on as well. Just over midway point from uh, COP21, which we were, of course, both at, and to 2030 goals. Um, we're a long way off, aren't we? We are. And I mean, if you look at the data, it's impossible not to be disappointed. I mean, we now need, we know we need to reduce emissions by 45% by 2030 to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. If you look at the recent reporting, we're actually on track to increase emissions by 9%. Now, that would lead to catastrophic impacts around the world and is far from what we were promised in Paris that we would deliver. So that's one side. But actually, there is another reality which seems contradictory, but which is also true. And that is that costs are coming down for clean energy. We're seeing rapid transformation of energy systems. We're seeing restoration of natural ecosystems. And actually, that exponential curve of progress is beginning to unfold. Change takes longer than you think possible. Mm. Then when it happens, it happens faster than you could have imagined. So both are true at the same time. So they love a... Um uh, an acronym over in the, in the process as well. We've already mentioned, what have we got? Well, UNFCCC, uh, we've had COP itself, we've had uh, the GST, the global stock take. Well, but, but, that, but in all seriousness, it's, it's the NDCs, which, is there going to be a name and shame? The national determined contributions, it used to be, let's do this top down, but actually everyone's got their own uh, bottom up um, policy and way of getting to market as well. Will there be a naming and shaming here at COP of who's failing on the NDCs, their nationally determined commitments? Well, to a certain degree there will, but that sort of fits into the process and there will be some countries that will announce how they're doing on their NDCs this year, but not everybody. But the key point is that nationally determined contributions need to be in the national interest. And that's what's so great about the transformation of energy systems is now countries taking action. It's profitable for that economy to take action and transform more quickly. So that's why I think what we're beginning to see now is a process that will lead to more NDCs in two years in Brazil that are far more ambitious than those we have on the table at the moment because now what countries understand this is in their economic interests it's in their employment interests and so that it's in their political interests as well so tom speaking of national interests it is in the uae's best interest to continue to be a major exporter of right. fossil fuel and that has come under intense criticism coming into this cop what needs to be done to restore credibility perhaps if you are so inclined to suggest there has been a loss of credibility in this cop process what needs to be done to restore credibility in order for this to be a success? So it's a great question and it's not been a very good start with this report that came out that demonstrated or alleged that Dr. Selton had been planning to use the meetings that were being scheduled here with his COP28 presidency hat on to arrange oil deals at the same time, right? So, so that's really bad, and it's bad on a couple of levels. One is the COP president has to elevate above national interests and represent the interests of the whole COP. And if anyone in the COP, you imagine you come to a negotiation, you feel like the person setting the agenda is pursuing their own agenda, that's not very good for trust. And also, as you say, the meetings that were alleged to being organized are directly contradictory to what the COP was planning to achieve. So as a result of that, I think he's come out, let's not forget, and denied this strenuously, that he was planning to do it. And now it's all down to deliver. 
delivery. We actually now need to see early wins from the COP presidency on loss and damage, on a range of other things that show they've been working hard to set us off in the right direction. If they can do that over the next couple of days and show they are representing the interests of all countries, I think we can get this back on track. But action is now what counts. I'm sure you'll also agree this is a really critical moment for the oil and gas industry, something that Steve knows well, having covered this sector for a long time too. Um, your take on whether or not we're actually going to see genuine commitments from the sector here, number one on methane, but also number two on the verbiage on the final report here, whether or not we're going to see this long, elusive phase out rather than phase down of fossil fuels? What do you think? Well, it's a great question. I think that we will see final language on fossil fuels. As you say, two years ago in Glasgow, we were going to get phase out. That became phase down at the last minute, and that was very controversial. I think we've got a good chance at seeing phase out. And weirdly, I think the chances of that kind of went up throughout this, yeah. this scandal, because now Dr. Selton knows he has to deliver. The question is how many qualifiers will be around that? Will it be an orderly phase out, which kind of means slow? Will it be an orderly phase out of unabated fossil fuels, which means carbon capture and storage. So there will be some verbiage around that that I think will move us forward, but it will still contain qualifiers that are get-out clauses if people don't feel like the transition is happening in the way they want it to. I think that's fascinating. You said I couldn't agree more that I think mm. the pressure on Dr. Sultan just ratcheted up because of all those, again, unproven at the moment allegations as well. So I think that's very interesting as well. But, but did you make a mistake? Did every cop before this one make a mistake by making me go out of the green zone, let alone the blue zone, and go and talk to the oil and gas executives? Because I did in Paris, I did in Glasgow, uh, and I was never allowed to see them in the blue zone. Should you have brought them into the conversations? Because it's such a key part uh, of the transition story. So I would say that when I was in position at the UNFCCC together with Christiana, we actually did embrace the oil and gas industry, and we spoke I didn't see them extensively. in the blue zone in some, the of, some of them were there. Some of them were there. Not as much as this year, but yeah. some of them were there. However, we've had a bit of a change of heart. I've had a bit of a change of heart over the last couple of years. If you look now, we know that to meet our targets, oil and gas companies need to be investing 50% of their revenues in renewables rather than new exploration by 2030. It's currently like 2%. So all, despite the narrative and the rhetoric, we've actually not seen, in the midst of the glut of revenues that they generated with the spike of oil prices that came due to the Ukraine war, they didn't invest that additional revenue in transformation. They invested it either in distributing it to shareholders or in new exploration. What, 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 That's not the action of a serious player. What if they invest it? Here's, here's a question, which, go, which is part of the much bigger conversation in, in DAC uh, and uh, CCUS. What, what if they is that good enough for you? Yeah, real I'll solutions. take that. That's why, I mean, I'm a pragmatist, right? Yeah. Whatever momentum we can get, real solutions. If we really see genuine amounts of revenue invested in those solutions, that's great. So I just realised I added two more acronyms in there for our poor view. Direct care capture uh, and, and, and um, carbon, carbon capture. capture. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sorry. No. <laughs> um, are they real, though? You think they're, they're real and effective solutions here? Because, you know, the industry has also come under criticism for investing in that technology. Yes, the oil and gas industry is also investing in renewables. I think we've seen a spike in that type of investment. But does it go far enough to tilt the register here? So, I mean, they're clearly real and they clearly merit investment and they're probably an important part of our solution. I think what people exercised about is the idea that they are excessively relied on in commitments and we say oh we don't have to do anything because we've got direct air capture we've got carbon capture and storage so therefore let's assume that they will solve the problem down the road if we can demonstrate that those technologies are cost-effective can have a meaningful impact on our emissions trajectory of course they should be part of it we need all tools to actually deal with this crisis um 
Financing is complicated. Uh, I found it, even in my research. I don't know whether I'm looking for greater commitments on broader financing on the tradition and the switch to renewables, sending money for uh, adaptation and, uh, and for losses. What, what is the key in finding? Because the figures are underwhelming. We haven't hit $100 billion per year transfer of money to the emerging market, apart from this year. I think we're probably going to get there yeah. as well. I mean, it's the nearest we've got to um, the kind of levels we need. But we're talking trillions, aren't we? So what is the hope for more money for all these things when the actual money promised at COP, uh, Paris Agreement, hasn't been forthcoming? Well, I mean, finance plays on multiple roles in negotiations. One of those is around equity, right? Climate change is an issue that is very unfair. It's been caused by certain countries and mainly experienced by others. And for political reasons, there needs to be some kind of balancing out on finance. That's why it plays such an important role here. We need to see loss and damage commitments, adaptation commitments that are public resources of significant amounts of money that provide the platform that can lead to mitigation commitments, right? That is a political outcome. At the same time, those resources are not going to solve the problem. We're going to solve the problem with massive amounts of private sector investment in profitable solutions, in renewables, in all kinds of other technologies that will actually get us to where we need to go. And we are seeing that money flowing, not at the speed it needs to in developing countries, which is why we still need solutions there to prepare pipelines and de-risk investments. But those are the different categories of finance that I would look at. Um, lovely to see you. Um, and apologies to all of you for the acronyms. Uh, I won't do any more. Uh, TRC, the former executive of... No, a big one. Tom <laughs> Rivick, the former executive advisor at the UNFCCC. And he's also I've written extensively on uh, all these issues as well, so you might want to look at all that as well. Thanks, Tom. Thank Lovely you so to see you. Thanks, Tom. Uh, and you can stick with us uh, for our COP coverage uh, throughout the day. We'll be speaking to the ThyssenKrupp CEO, Miguel Angel Lopez Borrego. Uh, later this hour, do not miss that uh, first on CNBC conversation. And that's not all. We have plenty more coverage and many more guests here from Dubai, including uh, the EBRD president, Odile Renaud Basso, uh, the former Unilever CEO. Uh, who's such a big presence at, uh, in Paris as well, Cop, uh, big pardon, the uh, CEO of Pullman, uh, and the CEO of Yara, then Tora Holsetter. We might have a very interesting announcement from Yara as well, potentially for you as well. Uh, Karen, how the devil are you? Uh, Steve, uh, you're looking great out there. I've got to say, you've really chosen your timing well. We've slipped to minus two degrees in London today, so I hope you're soaking up the heat out there for Cop. I certainly am soaking it up. I misread my briefing and I thought I was in an indoor studio, Karen. As it is, I've brought two very heavy woolen suits, but I haven't put my, uh, my vest on. Fabulous. Uh, we're looking forward to more of the coverage. Now coming up on the show, China's manufacturing sector slips deeper into contraction territory. We'll break down the numbers. Plus, Elon Musk launches an expletive-laden attack on advertisers, leaving the ex-social media platform with the focus on Disney CEO Bob Iger. We'll bring you those comments later in the show. And we'll have plenty more from COP28 in Dubai, including an interview with the EBRD president. As you just heard, don't miss that first on CBC Conversation at 8.15 CET. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. U.S. GDP expanded by 5.2% in the third quarter, faster than the initial print of 4.9%.
The reading will add to speculation on whether further rate hikes are required and how long rates should remain elevated. Consumer spending growth came in lower than expected, rising 3.6%. Meanwhile, Fitch is warning higher U.S. household debt servicing will eat into consumer spending next year. It says the dominance of fixed-rate mortgages in the states has eased the impact of higher rates for the time being. But rising credit card premiums and resuming student loan repayments will see non-mortgage debt servicing hit historic highs next year and reach nearly 12% of average household income by 2025. Well, let's uh, circle back to some of the market action we saw as a result of uh, the wash-up of the data. And it certainly does feel as though markets have quietened down into the final stretch of the month of November, what has been a bumper trading month for stocks. And uh, you can see the markets not doing too much yesterday, a slight improvement on the likes of the Dow, uh, 13 points to the upside. Worth noting that you had real stocks back in play, also fairly significant moves in the banking stocks that provided a green prop under the Dow, but elsewhere, communication services. One of the weakest spots, although the FANG stocks did okay, but the undercurrent around communication services did cause the NASDAQ to fall just over a tenth of a percent. So a slight retreat for the index, but keep in mind the extent of the gains so far. We've had month-to-day gains of close to 11% on the NASDAQ, well and truly outpacing other global boards. I want to take you to Treasuries. We've seen over the course of the month with that risk appetite that the yields have also faded. We've had a real pullback and as a result we've seen a much lower territory as we look to close out the trading month. 4.28 is what we've got at the longer end and we're 4.65. Real readjustment in recent weeks around this expectation that we're on that plateau when it comes to the rate hikes and we could be moving into the descent in 2024. Just when, the timing of that is still quite key. But uh, Waller's comments this week uh, noted Hawker of the Fed, certainly just again adjusting markets views that we're now in this deflationary cycle. And if it continues, we could get those rate cuts coming through. And that is uh, just keeping a lid on some of those yields on the Treasury market. I want to take you to the dollar, and there's been a real link across between yields to what we're seeing on the dollar, the, the uh, weakening trend we've had on greenback. As a result, Cable, we're perched at the 127 handle roughly this morning, and we're just shy still of 110 on euro dollar. So significant gains on both trades recently. Dollar yen too, you've seen some mileage for the Japanese currency after months of weakness. 147 on dollar yen, dollar yuan seeing uh, some declines too this morning. To WTI Brent and Gold, a huge focus on this producers meeting for OPEC Plus. The market, of course, uh, looking closely at COP2 and any outcomes around fossil fuels. But Brent WTI, both marching high, have certainly been on a monthly and weekly journey and both sort of somewhat opposed to each other in terms of the changes we're seeing on the commodities. But 83 is what we now got on Brent and 78 on WTI. Gold, which has had a very strong run for the month of November. You can see uh, just pulling back morning session, but still we're perched at 2,042 on the trade. The Asian markets, so this is how the region is performing today. It's mostly firmer, the exception China, where you've got a patch of weakness down about a tenth of a percent. Firmer day of trade for Australia, not a bad uh, performance, three quarters of a percent to the upside. Contraction in China's manufacturing sector picked up pace in November. Raising investors' speculation, more stimulus could be on the way to shore up the country's flagging industrial sector. Let's get out to Lin Lin for more on this. Lin, it's fascinating. The market has been somewhat downbeat on China despite the early optimism this year. Now as we looked around out the year, it looks again as though we're watching fading momentum in the factory side. Yeah, very much so, uh, Karen. For example, the benchmark CSI 300, that's on track to fall for the fourth straight month, which uh, very much uh, 
characterises the bearish sentiment out there. And as we have got this reading for the official PMIs, we saw a contraction and uh, it also fell below expectations for a gauge that is very much representative of those bigger state-owned firms. And that's despite more favourable base effects, given that at around this time, uh, China was, of course, still dealing with disruptions coming out of the COVID pandemic. Breaking down the factory activity PMI, it showed that output and new orders were both down for the month of November. On the export side, in terms of new export orders, that fell deeper into contractionary territory, a sign that still, in terms of that external demand, it is still showing weakness. On the non-manufacturing side, that's the construction and the services, uh, that was also down compared to October, but still above the 50 line, which demarcates uh, contraction versus expansion. But one really interesting thing to note is that the services sector indicator, that actually fell below 50 to 49.3 for the first time this year. The folks at uh, Goldman Sachs, in a note, they said that that could be down to the fact that October's numbers were boosted because of that eight-day golden week holiday, which would have boosted up tourism and the services side of things. In terms of the analysis coming out on, on this, uh, showing, of course, that this, this is a bumpy recovery, that there is weakness uh, and uh, the calls for more stimulus, not just incremental stimulus, but sort of bigger, going bigger to try and, I guess, offset some of that negative sentiment that we're seeing playing through uh, on the mainland markets. Karen, it's back to you. Lynn, Lynn, I want to pick up on that point because, uh, Lynn, one of the, the issues we've seen is that uh, the market has been misplaced hoping for stimulus. It's been very targeted into 2023. If we're talking about a larger package here, we could be dealing with bad news is actually good news for markets. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the, the thing about the stimulus, uh, we've seen it coming through in this incremental fashion, a lot of it very much targeted towards the property sector, but a lot of it, a lot of it also coming from reports that at this moment are still very much unconfirmed. And as I mentioned, uh, you know, with the benchmark uh, CSI 300, that is on track uh, for uh, the fourth uh, straight month of falls. And so certainly uh, there is this feeling among investors and analysts, economists, uh, calling for, for more uh, to come via fiscal stimulus uh, as well as monetary policy as well. Lynn, thank you very much for the update today. Elsewhere, Henry Kissinger, who drew admiration and condemnation in equal measure as he helped forge America's path through the Cold War, has died aged 100. Kissinger leaves a complex legacy. He helped establish diplomatic relations between China and the United States and was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his role in ending the war in Vietnam. But he went on to become one of the most reviled figures of his age for his role in American actions in Cambodia, Chile and Indonesia. In his later life, Kissinger served as an advisor to politicians and businesses alike, including on the board of Elizabeth Holmes's Theranos before its collapse in 2018. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.